Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Thank you, Ed. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. We'll look at one verse this morning. Looking at, uh, at one particular verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Read, Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you are a glorious God. We do thank you that uh, your character never changes and that we are here this morning because of your faithfulness. Your faithfulness to your word, your integrity. Father, and your attributes, and we pray this morning that you would be glorified in the service. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be open to the working of the Holy Spirit, and Lord, we ask that you would give us your wisdom and grace, Father, as we seek to understand your word and how to apply it to our lives. Lord, I pray for each and every individual here, as they, as they have their heads bowed, Father, I pray that their hearts would be bowed before you as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The story about a, uh, a very busy dental office. They had a lot of people coming in and out, and one particular person was always late. So this time, he, um, I think the receptionist had probably gotten a little bit sick of him, and he called up and said, listen, I'm going to be about 15, 20 minutes late. That's not going to be a problem, is it? To which she responded, no, 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 no problem at all. We just want to have time to, to administer the anaesthetic, so we'll just do it without it. He arrived early. There are many things that motivate people in life. <clears throat> some positive, in this case, one negative. Do you know what the motivating factor of this one was? Pain. This is an example of negative motivation. Pain is definitely a strong motivator. But there are also many positive motivators. Now, then we often struggle with the idea of when we're doing something, what is it that's genuinely motivating us? Have you ever had that thought in your mind? You're doing something, and it might be even something good, but at the back of your mind there's this like nagging question about why am I actually doing this? Am I doing it because I genuinely want to do it, or is it am I doing it because I'm being forced to do it? Am I trying to please someone else around me and, and you know and look good in front of them? There are many things that um, that concern us in these areas, and I, I know as Christians we uh, we often struggle with our motivations, um, and. That's not unusual, okay? So if you've gone through those particular questions in your mind about why you do certain things, or you may have actually gone through a whole period in your life doing something and then realise a lot later on you were doing it for the, for the completely wrong reason. There's, if you're in that boat, that's not unusual, okay? Because the Bible teaches the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Okay? So the heart that we still have, the old heart... Um, is difficult to actually understand because it wants to have its own way. But the Bible gives us, if you go to Jeremiah with me, chapter 17, it raises that question. It says, the heart is deceitful, deceitful above all things. Okay, we know that. And it's desperately wicked. But then it ends with a question, who can know it? Can we know it? Do we know our own hearts? 
The Bible then gives the direct answer straight after that. So if you look at Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10, there's someone who's, who puts up their hand and says, I know. Okay, so, so someone asks a question and someone actually answers straight after. And it's the Lord. And he says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I tried the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. So someone asks a question and then God says, I know it. I know the answer to that. I'm the one who searches the heart. I know the deepest parts of the heart. And see that, that, that word reins? That's the deepest part of us. Okay. Actually, originally, the, 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 the literal meaning of reins are kidneys. Okay? But it's the deepest part of a person where their motivation actually comes from, the deepest part where the real motivation exists. So God knows, and he says he does, he knows all of our secret motivations. He searches our hearts. He knows the deepest meanings of why we do certain things, the real reason. And that's an important point for us to understand. He knows us. To think that he doesn't, that he doesn't know us um, better than ourselves is foolery. It's, it's, it's silly. He knows us a lot better than we know ourselves. He knows the real reasons why we do things. So if he knows us better than we know ourselves and we struggle to know ourselves, where do you go to find out about yourself? The answer is him because he has the answers. He knows us. So that's where the relationship comes into it. Ever had a really good friend, a really close friend, who's got the guts to tell you the way it is? You know, sometimes we only want to hear good things about ourselves, don't we? It's hard to hear negative things about ourselves. But if you've got a really close friend, someone you can trust, and they come to you and they say, listen, you know something? You're doing something wrong there. You're, you're more likely to trust them, aren't you? Because you think that they haven't got any underlying motives. Um, God's better than a good friend. Understand that. God knows more about us than we know about ourselves. So when God comes to us and says to us, this is the way you actually are, it's good for us to listen to what he says. To ignore his teachings, to ignore his feedback to us, is actually very dangerous. But my question to you today is actually a number of questions. Why are you here? What are you doing here this morning? Are you here because it's a nice place to come and meet? Are you here because there might be someone here that you like, that you love to have a chat with every now and then? Are you here because maybe you're forced to come here? Maybe it's an expectation that other people have of you. So if you're not here, they'd be disappointed. What motivated you to get dressed this morning? Get in your cars, come here. What motivates you in the things that you do in everyday life? This morning I want to... I want to help us to answer those questions. And by doing one particular thing, helping us to understand our purpose. And my, understanding, my, my, my thought is this. If we understand our real purpose, why God created me and you, then it may provide us a foundation for real motivation. Do you understand? Do you get, do you get what, I'm trying, what I'm going to try and do? If you understand your purpose, why... We were created, why God put me here, then it can become the, the motivation or the foundation for all of my motivations. Today I want us to try to lay down a genuine foundation for our very existence. Ever asked the question, why are you here? 
Well, the Bible answers that question. It answers it very clearly. And if you understand why God created you, the purpose for which he created you, then that can become the motivation for what you do. Okay? Let me give you some definitions. Motivation, by Mr. Google again, comes very handy. Motivation, a reason or reasons for acting or behaving in a particular way. Okay? So the reasons you behave in a particular way or the things you do is motivation. The definition of purpose, the reason for which something is done or created for which something exists or for which something exists. So motivation and, and uh, purpose are actually very closely linked together. It's, one gives you the existence for why you're there. The other one gives you the existence or the reason for why you're actually doing what you do. Okay, So the purpose of today's sermon is to clarify what exactly our purpose is. Why we were created. And in answering the purpose of our life, we may find the, the essential thing for what should motivate us in life. Okay, now I preached on this topic about seven years ago. Some of you may remember it, some of you may not. But I thought after seven years it's probably good to touch this base again. Because it's a very important topic. So... This is the thought. Understanding your purpose gives meaning, direction, and clarity. And as a result, it gives us motivation. So what motivates us? Is it punishment or reward? Because huh? a lot of people are motivated by either one or the other. Now, some people don't do certain things because they're worried about being punished for it. Other people do certain things because they want the approval of other people around them. Other people do certain things because it makes them feel good about themselves. It gives them an elevated sense of, of, uh, of importance okay? and, per and, and, and what they think is purpose. Teenagers in this world struggle probably the most in this particular area because when you're a teenager, you're struggling to find out what your identity is. Where do you fit in in this whole scheme of things? And because they don't understand what their purpose is, and this is uh, unsaved teenagers I'm, I'm focusing on here, who they are, what they're doing here, what their purpose is in life, um, we find in our culture more teen suicides than ever before. Teens kill themselves because there's no purpose. And, and when, they, when they're trying to work out what they're doing here in life, what are they here for, what's their main driving motivation, they realise they're on sinking sands. Everywhere they step doesn't actually, is not solid. Ever since secular humanism over took over our, um, our schools and the Bible was taken out and Christianity was removed from our schools, um, teen suicides have skyrocketed because secular humanism is in fact a religion. A religion that offers no purpose, no direction, no motivation. It simply says that you are the centre of the universe, but guess what? You came by evolutionary process, so therefore there's no purpose for you being here in the first place. So try and make sense of all that. And when you're a teen, that is a difficult course to try to navigate. In fact, an impossible course for anyone to navigate. But only God can give you a purpose in life. The only one who can tell you a purpose or give you a purpose is if someone created you. Do you understand that? So if I make a car, or someone builds a car, it's created for a purpose. Right? The, the people that created or designed that chair and built that chair was created for a purpose. And in fact, almost nothing that is made, can't think of anything at the moment, 
is made without a purpose. Everything that we see around us is there for a particular purpose. So when we come along and say, well, what about me? I mean, a pane of glass has a purpose. A chair has a purpose. Carpet has purpose. Lights have a purpose. Their air conditioner has a purpose. This pulpit has a purpose. Everything that we see around us has a purpose for why it was made. So when we, we sit down and contemplate and remove God out of the equation, what purpose do you find for yourself? Nothing. So only God can actually give us the reason for why we are actually here. And if you take God out of the equation, the only purpose that you're here for is either to survive or have pleasure because it makes you feel good. Outside of those two things, there's no real reason. As people get older, their, their reasons they give themselves for existing or their purpose in life becomes more sophisticated. You know, they, they fluff it up a little bit and they make it look a little bit more, you know, more fancy. You know, they might say, oh, it's my career, I have a wonderful career, I want to, I want to help the world, or, or I've got a family, or they've got, they want fame, or they want fortune, or they just want to be creative. You, know, you want to create something with a legacy that, that lives on beyond you. Nothing more substantial than those things. It's, nothing, it's not really more substantial than just having a good time and, uh, and existing. The world's motivation... The world's motivation, I speak primarily of those who say there is no God, who insist that we exist because of chance and luck um, through evolution, have no real reason to exist. Hence, no reason to speak about morality or to go to higher levels of nobility. There is no reason for those things. So the world's basic view is enjoy your life because tomorrow you die. Is that fair enough? You've got a certain amount of time to live. Enjoy it as much as you can. And if you have certain desires and dreams, fulfil your dreams as much as you possibly can um, to find happiness and peace. So in the West, we have this thing called capitalism. Right? You know what capitalism is? Well, it's basically the, the, the pursuit of, of, of gaining capital, of gaining money, of, 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 growing, in, um, of growing in wealth through, um, through attaining more and more assets, which could be money and, and things like that. Okay? Now put that together with atheism or secular humanism, okay, which, which is self, essentially just self-worship. And what we have is inevitably greediness built upon a foundation of selfishness. If you are your own God, if you are the most important thing in the universe, then you will just... And someone tells you that the, the, the best thing in life is to get as much assets, as much money, as much property, and get as much importance as you can, then that's what you will spend your life doing. If my only motivating factor is my happiness, and if happiness comes from wealth that I acquire, then what's going to happen when I lose my wealth? Well, you see what happens when the stock market crashes. When the stock market crashes, people come crashing down off buildings as well and off bridges and everything else because their life has been built around money and their wealth. When I lose my job, when I lose my, uh, my, my wealth, when, uh, when I have to start back over again, all of a sudden, my whole world comes crashing down. And unfortunately, this attitude is actually too common among Christians as well, or people who call themselves Christians. Many Christ people who call themselves Christians have actually adopted the world's motivation for their lives. In fact, a lot of the stuff that goes on in the other churches is about preaching about how you can be successful in life. 
If you listen to some of the sermons that, that are coming out of, um, of the modern day churches, have a listen to Joel Osteen for a few times. Actually, no, I don't want to encourage you to do that. You'll find very quickly that the whole message is focused on you. How you can become better as an individual, how you can become, uh, you know, have more control over your life, how you can control your finances, how you can find your destiny, how you can feel your potential that God is putting you. It's all focused on you. And just add, just keep on adding on all the different, a lot of the new, um, new preachers that are around. It's all the same thing, just wrapped up in a slightly different cloak. But God is grieved for that. <coughs> because the focus, the adoration, should be toward a holy, loving, omnipotent, omniscient and magnificent God. Instead, it's focused on fallen man. The church today is rapidly turning away from the teaching of Scripture to the vain and dead philosophies of the world where men are the centre with vague purposes, earthly goals. Um, and we are preaching... We, sorry, we are, we are reaping the fruits of this in our society. So, if, the, if we've lost our way, if you've lost your way and you're not sure why you're here or where, you're, where your focus should be, it's a good idea to turn back to the scripture because that's the letter that God gave us. Personal. A personal letter that tells us exactly why we're here. Okay, So we're going to look into the scriptures now to find out what our real reason, the real reason for why God put us here. So what is the true end of man? What's his purpose? And for that matter, what is the true purpose for the meaning of everything that exists? You see, everything is all wrapped up into one. The whole universe, the heavens, man and everything else. Before we get into that, let's look at the background to this verse. Okay, So 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether ye eat... Or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, that didn't that verse didn't just come out of nowhere. Why is he talking about eating and drinking? Why is he talking about all those things? Well, basically, in the in the, the chapter, in that particular chapter, Paul is dealing with certain questions of life. Should I do this or should I do that? Should I abstain from food? Because a question came up about foods offered to idols. Some people were happy to eat foods offered to idols. Other people were being offended. So Paul was answering the question about what do I do? What should be my motivating factor in those things? How should I consider the choices that I make with also reference to other people around me? Should I do it this way or should I do it that way? So it's a very practical chapter for the Christians who were living in a, in a, uh, in a situation where you had Jews that had come out of Judaism okay, and, and accepted Christianity, but were still holding on to some of, their, um, some of the things that, they, weren't, that they, they, uh, they were used to, for example, eating pork and those sorts of things. They still found it distasteful. And then you get together with the Greeks, who when they wanted to get together and have a nice time together, would put a pig on a spit and start, and start doing this sort of business. Okay? How do, you, how do we live together knowing these things? That there are differences to certain things that we believe. There are certain things that, that I might not be comfortable with, but someone else might be totally comfortable with, but don't really answer or, or subject themselves to any particular law one way or the other. So Paul's answer to this is whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. This is the first and most important of the basic principles of our preaching here in this church. Real Christianity is God-centred. 
not man-centered. Rural Christianity is all about him, not about me. In fact, it has very little to do with me at all. You know, people want to make the whole gospel about that God came to save me as an individual and if I was the only person that ever existed, he would still do it because he loved me so much. Well, you know, God does love. But what's the purpose behind God doing what he did? So what is the... Let's, let's start with the foundation. And the foundation is God, not us. It all revolves around him. We are not the centre. Sorry to break the news to you guys. You're not the most important person here. Sorry to break it to you. The focus is on him. In fact, you and I come a distant third, not even second. Because in Scripture, according to Scripture, God comes first. Then the people around you come second. And you come last. That's the way Christianity works. In fact, I heard this a long time ago, which gives you the, 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 what do you call that thing with those three letters? J-O-Y. Jesus, others, and finally, yourself. You want joy? That's how you get it. By putting things in the proper perspective. An obsession, this is, and this is, I want to use the word obsession here because this is what it should be, okay? Obsession can be a, a, a bad word if it's, if it's on something, focused on something bad, but an obsession with the glory of God is the hallmark of, a, of the true knowledge of God. If a person's obsessed with God's glory, then they're on, they're on a good foundation. So what is the glory of God? Well, the original meaning of the word glory had to do with weightiness. It's a bit like, you know, if I get, a, um, if I get a, a piece of gold and compare it to a piece of wood, which is the weightier one? Well, gold is heavier for the same amount of, of substance, okay? So glory has to do with weightiness. It has to do with um, preciousness. The glory of God, now listen carefully, the glory of God summarises the seriousness, the perfection, the infinite significance of all the attributes of God. It sums up who he is in his awesome brightness and weightiness of all his perfections. For example, for example, God is the pinnacle of grace and mercy. There is no one, there is no one who even comes close to defining or coming close to what it means to have grace and mercy. He is the summit of holiness. There is no one who can go above him in holiness. He is the perfection, the perfect picture of what it looks like. He is perfect in knowledge. He is perfect in presence. And when I say perfect in presence, it means he can be everywhere perfectly at every possible time. He is the very definition of love and the foundation of all truth. I mean, I can go on all day listing all of God's attributes. This is what gives him glory because of who he is. When Moses went up, remember that, that story when Moses went up to the mountain for 40 days and he, and he specifically asked God, I want to see you. Reveal yourself to me. I want to see you. Um, God tells him, uh, no, I can't do that. Because if I do that, you're a goner. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 33 because I want to show you something interesting. Exodus chapter 33. 
So Exodus 33, chapter, sorry, chapter 33, verse 22. This is God's response to Moses. When, when Moses asked, asked God to reveal himself to him, God says, And it shall come to pass that while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and I will cover thee with my hand while I pass by, and I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall thou not see. You like that? So he's going he's gonna to put him in the middle of a rock in a, in a, in a hole in the, in the side of a mountain, okay? So he's completely stuck in there. Then he's going to cover him over. Then he's going to pass by, and as he's going away, then he'll take his hand away so he can see just a fleeting glance of his back. So, so Moses spends 40 days with God on the mountain. And do you know what happened? Go to 28. So go to, go to chapter 34, verse 28. Moses has spent, Moses has spent, even though he hasn't see, he isn't actually seeing him, seeing all his glory face to face, look what happens. He comes back down off the mountain and he's lit up like a Christmas tree. Verse 28. And he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. You like that? 40 days he just was there without having to drink, without having to eat. And he wrote upon the tab tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And it came to pass, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. Okay, so... After spending 40 days with God in God's presence, Moses was literally glowing, literally glowing. So when he started to talk to the people, he came down off the mountain and spoke to, it says, look at this, Aaron. Aaron and the children of Israel were actually scared of him because he was glowing that much. So did you know their, um, their answer to that, how they sorted that problem out? He put a veil over his face. He had to hide his face because he was glowing from being in the presence of God. So, is God glorious? Of course he is. Can you imagine what it will be like in heaven when we do see him, when we do see all of, his, all of his glory? It will be absolutely extraordinary. God's glory is something that only he possesses. It's something that radiates from him to all of creation. Something that is revealed from the smallest atom to the biggest galaxy, all in all, reveals how glorious God actually is. It tells us a story. All of creation tells us a story about the God that we believe in. So what does it mean then that we glorify him? They're the ones of that. What does it mean then to glorify him? If he's got all this glory, what does it mean that we glorify him? Because it says there, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all of the glory of God. Can we add to his glory? Can we add to it? Can we make him more glorious than what he is? Or can we take away from his, from his glory? No, you can't. You, we cannot add to his glory. And we can't take away from his glory. He is perfect and infinitely glorious with or without us. In fact, if God didn't do anything, he didn't create the universe, he would still be glorious okay, in every possible way. When God does things, though, it reveals his glory. It demonstrates his glory. So we can't add 
one iota to God's glory. Before creation came into, into existence, God always was and always was perfect and glorious in every possible way. So rather, for us to glorify God means us to ascribe glory to him that is due to him in our worship and in our praise. It is our declaration. It's like, it's like telling everyone else, God is like this. It's lifting him up in, our, in song. It's lifting him up in our prayers. It's basically declaring to everyone around us, including ourselves, that the God we serve is absolutely breathtaking. And that everyone should worship him because he is worthy of all of our attention and our adoration. That's what glorifying God means. So you can do that by speaking those things, or we can do it by doing things. Okay, So that the things that we do are all singing the same tune. The things that we do, the things that we say, are all consistent in our lives. But if we receive glory for ourselves by getting the attention of others and seeking to have you know, the, the, the focus on ourselves so we feel bigger and, and better than we are, then God isn't happy with that. And this is the message that we see in Romans. When we share the gospel, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. There is no one that matches anywhere near the glory that God has. When we sin, it robs God of, of the recognition that he, that he genuinely deserves. Okay? When we sin, it's an action that robs him, rebels against him, and it doesn't recognize who he is as a person. Tell me, if there's anyone here, if you were granted an audience with Queen Elizabeth, would you be rude to her? Would anyone be, when they approached her, would you not, is there anyone here who would not at least follow some proper protocol with her? If you have other people watching you. Would you, would you disrespect her? No, you'd, you'd treat her with respect. In fact, and if you're not willing to treat her with respect, the Bible says that the Bible says that we are to honour the king. So what does honour mean? If not respect, show respect. But if you wouldn't do that with a person, why do we do that with God? Why do we, by our actions, insult him? It's because, it's because our flesh has managed to convince us that he's not that glorious. He's not that important. And we need some of the attention on ourselves. When we sin, it robs God of his glory. It robs, robs him of his rightfully deserved recognition. Sin shows a manifest disregard for God's love, his holiness, his purity, his perfection. It rebels against his standard of truth. Glorifying God should, should therefore, as a Christian, consume us. It should define us, the people we are. It should, it should be involved in every part of our lives. It's in our witness, in our worship, in our work, in our, in our friendships, in everything that we do. Now, I want you to understand something. The reason that's true is because God is committed to his own glory. God is committed to his glory. One of the most important things we need to understand as Christians is how important God's glory is to him. This is important to him. Because you know what Satan tried to do? When God created Satan, Lucifer, 
he created this amazingly beautiful and powerful angelic being. Now, some people say he's the most, he was the most powerful, okay? But I'm not sure if he was the most powerful. What we do know is that he was absolutely beautiful. He was um, talented and he was powerful. But when he looked at himself, he started to become enamored with himself. So the glory that was owed to God started to shift to himself to the point where he said, I want to be up there on that throne. I want to ascend to the heights. And that's when God cast him out. God is committed to his glory. Turn to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8 with me. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, simply says, I am the Lord. That is my name. Actually, when you see Lord over there, you have it all in capitals. The reason you have it all in capitals is that's the, is that's the tetragrammaton. I want to get that name right. wrong. Is that right? Tetragrammaton. It's the four-letter name of God that the Jews did not ever want to pronounce lest they, um, uh, what's the word? They blaspheme it. They use it in the wrong way. Okay. Um, so everywhere in the, in the Bible that we have his name, there's a capital O, L-O-R-N-D. So that's why it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. And it says, and my glory, this is the point, will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. God hates it when people try to rob him of his glory. And he will not share his glory with, with anyone else. Okay, Which is proof... That Jesus Christ is God. You know why? Because he does share his glory with Jesus Christ, his son. And we'll look at that verse down the track. He is the only one who the Holy Spirit glorifies, who Jesus says, I want to share in the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. So there's, there's, there are many places in the Bible that speak of God the Father having glory together with the Son. Okay? So that's the only place in the Bible where God shares his glory. Turn with me and I want to see I want to show you an example of someone who dared to rob God of his glory and, and what happened. Acts chapter 12 verse 21. Acts chapter 12 verse 21. Twelve twenty one says, And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, so he was all dressed nicely in his, uh, his royal garments, sat upon his throne and made an, an oration unto them. So he made a speech. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. You like that? The people shouted that. He didn't say it, but they said it. And look what it says. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. You like that? <coughs> so here you have a king who makes a speech. The people start chanting, 
He's a God, not a man. He's a God, not a man. He's a God, not a man. What did he do? He didn't do anything. He let them go on with it. So instead, he should have immediately stopped them from saying that, rebuked them, because he wasn't a God. But because he didn't do that and allowed them to chant that lie, God punished him. On the other side of that coin, we have the apostle, uh, apostles of Paul and Barnabas when they... Um, when they went to, what was it, in Greece, Acts chapter 14, verse 14. If you want to turn there, just turn a, a couple of chapters ahead. Demonstrate how you are supposed to be in that particular circumstance. Acts 14, 14 says, Which, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people crying out. And just stop there for a sec. Before that, they had actually healed a cripple of his, uh, of his disease, okay? They healed the crippled man, and when the people saw what they had done, they started saying that they were gods. They were, they were chanting out, they were, um, what were the two guys they were chanting? Was it Apollos? Jupiter, Jupiter and Mercury. So they were chanting out that they were actually gods, okay? So when Paul and Barnabas heard what was going on, they, rent, they ripped their clothes. Now that ripping your clothes, rending your clothes, actually a sign that you're completely grieved, all right? People do that when, when other people, when relatives died and things of that nature. And then it says that they ran in among the people crying out, verse 15, and saying, Sirs, why do you do these things? We, are all, we also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which, have had made, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things. So immediately you find Paul, when they hear that sort of stuff going on, Immediately stop it. And that's the right thing to do. Herod didn't stop it and God judged him. So does God think his glory is important? Oh yeah. He thinks it's important. The very reason we were created, in a nutshell, is to glorify God. That's the purpose for what we were made. Everything revolves around that. Okay? In everything we do, we can either glorify God or try to rob him of it. When we pray... Think of what you're doing. You're essentially saying, I need you. I can't live this life without you. I need your, um, your power in my life, your grace, your mercy, and everything else that you have because I'm not worthy of it and I'm not capable of it. What you're also saying when we pray to God is, I trust you. Think of it. When you're asking God, to answer a prayer, you're saying, I trust the answer you're going to give me. So you're saying he's trustworthy, he's faithful, he's glorious, he's merciful, he's loving, because when we go to him, we expect him to be caring for us. So prayer glorifies God. True prayer glorifies God. When we worship in the church and we sing the hymns and we, and we, we organise this particular meeting this way, it declares God's goodness. The purpose of to getting together is to come together to do this thing and to say, God is amazing. Let's celebrate him. Let's celebrate him and celebrate what he's done. Because the cross is a celebration of God's love. Unfortunately, people get wrapped up in, uh, in other things when they come to church. They come to church for other reasons. Come to church for the good time together in the community and, and, and feeling good about myself. You know, when I, when I hear, and I'll, I'll, I'll share this with you now, I'm not sure if any of you have ever said it, when someone says to me, I didn't get anything out of church, 
that I didn't get anything out of church, for me that is the biggest slap, to, slap in the face to God, not to me. Because what they're essentially saying is they've come to church for themselves. That they're the centre of, of everything, not God. So instead of actually making God the, the purpose for, for what we do, they make themselves the purpose of coming to church. So if things don't go right, oh, someone's offended me, oh, then uh, that's not going to work. The music wasn't good, that's not going to work. Um, the preaching wasn't the best. Think about what you're saying when that, those sort of statements are made. Isaiah 29.13 says, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as his people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honour me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. This is, the, this is the perfect image of what we have in church today. People are in church for themselves. I'm not saying you guys. But what I am saying is it's a typical of our culture, especially our culture, for that to be the foundation of why people go to, go to church. When we work, we can either glorify God or we can try to rob God of his glory. Because the Bible tell, tells us that if we, are, if we are working for someone else, we are to work for them as unto the Lord. When we speak, when we eat, when we deal with our brothers and sisters, we can either glorify God or rob him of his glory. Let's go to a few, few reasons why he, he created everything. God's, go to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm 19 verse 1. Psalm 19, 1 says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. All of creation declares how glorious God actually is. Okay? All of it does. Why is creation here? God glorifies himself through creation. It's a show of his, it's a revelation of who he is. So when we look at creation, when we look at everything around us, it should help us to adore God, to look at him and say, wow, look at what you've done. You are absolutely amazing. And people ask the question, why is the universe so big? But we're only on a small planet. It just declares the glory of God. He did it because he could. Why were angels created? Never wondered that. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6 verse 2. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2. Now, these are the seraphim. Now, a number of times in the, in the Bible, throughout all the Bible, wherever you have a picture of angels in heaven, and it happens in Revelation, it happens in Isaiah, um, the picture is always angels glorifying God and worshipping God. So, this is the picture. Above it stood, uh, Isaiah 6.2, above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, with twain he covered his faith and, uh, face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried out uh, unto the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
Can you imagine a being with six wings? I can't even picture a being with six wings. How glorious would that being be? Yet they're bouncing back to each other, declaring to each other how glorious God is and that the whole earth is full of his glory. Turn to what, go to chapter 43 of Isaiah. Why did God choose Israel? The nation of Israel, the people in Israel. Isaiah 43 7 says, Even everyone that is called by my name, that's that's all the Jews he's speaking of here, particularly. And he says, For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Who's, who's God speaking about? He's speaking about Israel. He created Israel for his own glory. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 12 says, Why did God save us? For this purpose. Right? So God saved us for this reason, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession, unto, again, the praise of his glory. Why were you saved? So that God would be glorified throughout all of eternity. We are a picture of God's unbelievable love and his grace. So when the angels look at us, and we'll be, we'll be like the the examples throughout all of eternity when they look at us they will will be a demonstration and evidence of how much God loves and that will be to his glory and his praise does that make you feel good isn't it nice to be held up as a shining example imagine that that God was able to take, and this is, the, this is the amazing thing with the whole thing about salvation, that God's able to take someone like me who was chained in sin and headed for hell, rebellious in every way, and no hope of ever being earning their way to heaven or, or working their way to heaven. God takes a no-hoper. And he saves them. He removes all their dead. He cleans them up. He makes me, he lifts me up, gives me a totally new identity without anything that I have done, and it cost him his own son to do it. Will that be something that we're going to be singing about for the rest of eternity? Oh, yeah. Does that give God glory? Of course it does, because it reveals God's amazing love throughout all of eternity. You and I are the book that the angels read. Do you understand that? Yeah, we have, we have this Bible, right? We have the Bible that God's given us. He wrote it for us. He didn't write it for the angels. You understand that, don't you? So when the angels, what do the angels read? Us. The angels long to look into the things that, that are happening to us. 
They don't, they don't experience these things. They don't get to experience them. The angels never went from a, a situation where they were completely lost and headed for hell, and then they were redeemed by the grace of God. So they look at us as examples. We might be strange to them, okay? as I imagine they would be to us if we first saw them. But we are glowing examples of God's amazing love. Okay? And so when one person turns to God, when one person gets saved, what do the angels do in heaven? They absolutely rejoice. Because once again, they rejoice because God is glorified. Once again, God has proven himself to be perfect and loving and kind and merciful and gracious. Regardless of what we do, it even says our mortal bodies are created for God's glory. Don't be able to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you are brought with a price. We're, sorry, we're bought with a price. Okay? That was the blood of Jesus, of God's Son, Jesus, right? Therefore, it says, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So God purchased us. He redeemed us. We were slaves to sin, sold under sin, headed for hell. God actually purchased us. We, are now, we now belong to him. So therefore, it says, we should glorify God with our bodies and with our spirits. So, and with our good works. Okay? Um, Philippians chapter 1, verse 11 says, Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. So, fruits of righteousness are the works that we do, which glorify God in our lives. That's what our lives should be. So by our works, we should glorify God. So let me summarise these, these points that I've actually given to you. Creation. All of creation is for his glory. The angels glorify him and were created for his glory. Israel was specifically created for God's glory. We have been saved so that for all of eternity, God gets glorified and praised. Our mortal bodies are to be used for the glory of God. Our good works are to be used as a glory to God and a praise to God. Now let me ask you this morning, are you unsure what your purpose in life is? Do you think you fit in there somewhere? Because God is consistent all the way through the Bible. Do you have a purpose in life? Yes, you definitely have a purpose in life. And it's to glorify Him. To glorify Him with everything that you have. What is the one thing that should encompass everything we do, everything we say, everything we think? It's his glory. When I do something, is he glorified through it? Is it telling everyone else how wonderful a God he is? Or is if what I'm doing or what I'm saying, trying to detract from that or take away from it? Turn to John chapter 17 verse 1. When God the Father sent Jesus to this earth to save sinners, okay, and to go to Calvary's cross and die there and then rise again on the third day, he achieved something very important, okay? The, Jesus' whole life on this earth, those years that he lived with his disciples, with his family, accomplished one very important thing, okay? Just so you understand that Jesus' purpose is the same as ours. Look at John chapter 17, verse 1. Now listen to these these words that Jesus speaks to his own father. 
These words spake Jesus, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And did you hear Jesus' words? I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. That was to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' mission on earth was to glorify the Father. His life, the cross, the resurrection, bring God glory. As the merciful, righteous, holy and perfect one that he is, he deserves all of our worship, all of our praise, all of our attention, and there is no one that should come before him in anything we do. So let me remind you about something this morning. Your purpose is to glorify God with your life. And what your view about God is will determine how you glorify Him. And the reason I'm telling you that now is because what you believe about God will determine the type of person you are towards Him. Is He perfect? Is He trustworthy? Is he, what, what sort of a God do you serve? Is He big or is He small? Is He a nasty God or is He an untrustworthy God? Is He a faithful God? The type of God you serve this morning, the type of God you believe in, will determine how you worship and glorify Him. Your worship cannot rise above what you believe about God. It cannot rise above that. Do you understand? So if I have an ounce of doubt about God's truthfulness, about God's integrity, about God's power, if I believe that He cannot do something, let's put it that way, if I believe there's a limit to what God can do, how will that then affect my prayers? Think about it. If I believe that God isn't fully trustworthy, how will that affect the way I come to him? If I, if I believe that God doesn't really love as much as me, how will that then affect the way I depend on him for that love? And then his justice. Sometimes, you know, the Bible says that we are not to take wrath and vengeance into our own hands. Leave that to God. So if I take wrath, if I am vengeful towards people that have done me wrong, what am I saying about God? I'm saying that he's not just. I cannot trust him to bring justice. Do you see that? How we worship and glorify God will never go above what we think about God. The attributes of God that we have in our mind will ultimately affect and lead how we worship or how we glorify Him. So we urgently need to recapture the centrality in our lives of the glory of God, in our lives and in our work. Too much what passes for evangelical Christianity today is all about man and being self-centred. A passion for the glory of God can redefine the manner in which we pursue our own life's choices. If our supreme goal is to glorify Him, then we won't be separating our church life from our work life from this other life. Do you understand? 
So we won't play the game of coming to church on a Sunday morning and behaving all nice and, and you know, and with everyone else and, you know, putting on a bit of a show, okay? And then as soon as we leave over here, we're actually doing something else and thinking something else. Or when we're by ourselves or when we're, when we're at the workplace, we joke along with people who are telling crude jokes because you understand that everything we do is for the glory of God. So everything that we do, does it rob him? If his name is used in vain, how do we respond to that? There is no place, there is no place that you can be. There is no situation you can find you, that you will find yourself in, no choice that you can make, which is not affected by this one thing. The way we treat our families will determine how, what we think about God and how we glorify him. The way we entertain ourselves, the way we spend our money, the way we relate to others, the way we treat our own bodies, the hidden attributes of our hearts, the time we spend nourishing our, our, our own relationship with him. You can't compartmentalise, you can't separate that from everything, from your work life, from your church life, from ministry, from, from your family. God is the most important thing in this universe and outside of it. We are not important. The quicker we understand that, the quicker we understand that, the quicker we'll actually be more godly, more holy, because it's all about him. And tomorrow, if he wants to kill me, that's good. What does, he, what does Job, say? Job say? Job says, even if he slay me, still will I trust him. Why? Because Job had God in the right place. God is all-powerful and he can do anything he likes with us. And in everything he does, he's always perfectly right and justified. What is your purpose for being here today? Now that you know what you were made for, what motivates you? What is, what is it that motivates you? This is the Apostle Paul. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatsoever you do, do all for the glory of God. God bless you. Thank you.